Hi, everyone, and welcome to another special episode of Coogee Voice. This month, November, is dedicated to pancreatic cancer awareness. As such, we're sitting down today with Dr. Bagoli, the country's former chief medical officer, who's advised the government on major health matters, including the Ebola and Zika pandemics. Chris was one of 10% of those diagnosed with pancreatic cancer who are lucky enough to have an operation called the Whipple. On today's episode, Chris shares his lived experience, how he came to be diagnosed, the symptoms he experienced, and the treatment process. You're listening to Coogee Voice. So that then got followed up with an MRI where they found what they thought was a pancreatic cancer and then another endoscopy and biopsy which confirmed it. I was feeling very well and in fact the day before my operation I did go for a 12 kilometre run and felt fine all the way through. Those who have any history of pancreatic cancer in their family, their family members should be following this up. It's just tough. Chris, firstly, welcome to Coogee Voice. How are you going today? Marjorie, uh, good afternoon and I'm, I'm going well, thank you very much. Feeling well. It's a lovely day here in Adelaide and things couldn't be better just right now. Well, there you go. We've been in lockdown. I think one of the things that has come out of COVID is the fact and this technology around Zooming. (laughs) Probably 12 months ago, we would not have even known what Zooming is about. But how has life been treating you this year? Well, life in relation to COVID in South Australia has really been remarkably straightforward and We've watched with great concern that our families and friends and the whole population there in Victoria, and they've had it tough. Right now, we've got a situation where the first community transmission in Adelaide, it's occurred in six months. So people are watching that. I was out this morning and noticed the lineup of cars going to COVID clinics, which had been very quiet, really had boosted just in the space of a few hours today. So there's great concern uh, in Adelaide, but we certainly hope and that and expect, I think, that this outbreak will be brought under control quickly. Chris, we've brought you onto the show today because we've dedicated this month of Could You Voice to talking about and advocating around pancreatic cancer. A bit of background about myself. My father had probably what is regarded as the most common experience when it comes to pancreatic cancer. He had been diagnosed in November 2018 and four months later, the day after the New South Wales state election, the day that I was actually proclaimed to become the member of parliament for my seat, my father passed away. But your experience has actually been quite a different experience and I would love for you to be able to share that with us on the show. Uh, We've previously had people on talking about the symptoms that people have, and I'm aware that the only symptom that you experienced was weight loss. So can you tell us a little bit about how you became diagnosed with pancreatic cancer? Marjorie, thank you, and thank you for taking this interest and involvement with pancreatic cancer. It is just so 
so important and so valuable. My own story is was is one of a great stroke of luck, I think, in the midst of having this disease, and there's no luck in having pancreatic cancer. Nonetheless, I was diagnosed before it had spread, which clearly would be quite different to your father's experience from what I can gather with that four-month period that you had with him following diagnosis. So I was uh, was feeling well. Yes, my, my GP uh, a couple of years earlier had said I was looking a little tubby and I took great exception to that. <laughs> and uh, so I said, right, and she wanted me to lose uh, three or four kilos. So I set about losing, well, in the end, by the time, by the time I got to surgery, as, as it turned out, I'd lost 20 kilos. In my background and um, doctor by background, I would have looked at any middle-aged bloke that had lost a lot of weight and just wondered where's the cancer. <laughs> but for me, look, I did change the diet. I did increase my exercise. So I was running more than 10 kilometres, say, four times a week. So, And I had, prior to that, had been running about five kilometres at the same time. So yeah, I put substantial effort in and I was taking great pride in how successful I was being and there are other people quietly saying to me, Chris, what's wrong? <laughs> so, but at the same time, uh, I had been having some blood tests and my blood sugars, which over a period of years have been bordering on high, just were still hovering around that. And when I looked at my blood count, my red cells were dropping a bit and my white cells and, and the other things called platelets. And so I was referred by my GP to a hematologist because I thought we could get to the bottom of this. And the GP knew me and he knew some of my previous work in, in medicine. And I suspect he may just have been assiduous anyway, but it maybe led him to make sure that he really followed up everything. So I had a bone marrow test, and I'm glad I was in a coma for that. Uh, I had a series of blood tests, and he thought then he should do a CT scan of my neck, chest, and abdomen to see whether lymph nodes were enlarged or the liver or the spleen was enlarged. The good news was that was all okay from that aspect, but the bad news was that they found something in my pancreas. And uh, so that then got followed up with an MRI where they found what they thought was a pancreatic cancer and then another endoscopy and biopsy which confirmed it. I was feeling very well. And, in fact, the day before my operation, I did go for a 12-kilometre run and felt fine all the way through. And that's the thing, Marjorie, with this blessed disease is that you can have no symptoms at all and uh, it wasn't the case from me. The disease could be quite advanced and you've had no symptoms at all. But there's no doubt that unexplained weight loss can be uh, a sign that something's happening. So I would have been better off ignoring the GP, having the weight loss and then thinking, oh, there must be something behind that, apart from my iron will diet and exercise regime. Chris, before we get on to your treatment, I feel like you're being a little bit coy by saying some of your previous work 
in medicine. Between 2011 and 2016, you were the country's chief medical officer. Did this at all help prepare you for your battle with pancreatic cancer? Well, I think my whole career in medicine did help me, Marjorie, in in one way. And in fact, in some ways, it might have been counterproductive. My time in medicine has allowed me to see people, and I spent more than 25 years in a clinical capacity in emergency medicine. So I've seen treated many, seen and treated many thousands of people, and I've seen people with all sorts of conditions come through, and some of whom would have had uh, a pancreatic cancer. But what you do learn is that doesn't matter who you are, we're all part of the human race and we can all get anything at any time. So you can't be surprised when you get a diagnosis, think that can't possibly be me, why me? Really the question is why not me? That in some ways helped me. What didn't help me was the fact that I knew what a dreadful disease pancreatic cancer can be, and particularly if it's diagnosed late. And also, all my my medical friends and and colleagues and so on, when I obviously had to tell them, look, I'll be having to have some time off uh, because uh, I had pancreatic cancer, you could sort of almost hear the intake of their breath and then the the swear word that I couldn't possibly say on, on the podcast came out because we all knew that for 80 to 90% of people, uh, the treatment is effectively palliative, which it would have been for your father. And we knew that the five-year survival rate, which is the way you look at cancers these days, which is about ninety over 90%, probably around 95% for breast cancer and prostate cancer, is around 10% for pancreatic cancer. So I knew instantly what I could well be facing, accepting that, well, why not me? And then just needing to buckle down. The good thing was I know a lot of people in medicine, a lot of people I could talk to, and the people to whom I was referred, I trusted. So the the CMO job in some ways didn't add to that preparation. I'm absolutely delighted this year that I'm not the Chief Medical Officer of Australia. <laughs> Delighted that Brendan Murphy has taken on. He's just done a fabulous job. I did say to people when I went to take on my role in Canberra as the Chief Medical Officer, and, of course, that was just a couple of years after the H1N1 flu pandemic, and I said to the folk there in the department, now I want you to all relax for the next five years because I've put in my contract there will be no pandemic while I'm the chief medical officer. <laughs> and uh, and it wasn't. <laughs> we were threatened with Ebola, we were threatened with Zika, and we were threatened with the Middle East respiratory syndrome, but we never had any of the above. Well, that was a stroke of luck, wasn't it, in terms of the timing with your job? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Chris, you are one of 10% of people who have been lucky enough to be able to have an operation. It's called the Whipple Procedure. Are you able to tell us a little bit about this and why or what made you unique so that you were able to receive this surgery when so many can't? Well, the key thing there, 
Marjorie, is that to have surgery, there has to be evidence that it will be a benefit. So if the cancer has already spread, you know, to the liver, to lungs or elsewhere, removing the primary cancer from the pancreas makes no difference to outcome, and it's a big operation. Beforehand, they looked to stage things to see if there's any evidence of spread. So I'd had the CT and I had the MRI, and there was no evidence of spread. Now, when they open you up, they still have a good look around. We'd proceed only if that uh, pre-surgery diagnosis uh, was found to be correct. So the procedure itself is quite extensive. I mean, the good news for the patient is, of course, that they're asleep at the time, and it takes six to seven hours, and they remove, obviously, the affected part of the pancreas, they remove the gallbladder. They remove the first part of the small intestine, which is called the duodenum. They can remove part of the liver and part of the stomach. So they take out a fair bit. And then, as I say to people, they put it back in a way that nature never intended. It is a big operation. I was in intensive care for eight days and, and then for about a week in the hospital before I went home. I think I lost about seven kilos in hospital. So by that stage, back to the original discussion, I'd started at 83 kilos. I think when they weighed me just before the operation, I was 63 and then I dropped further then. Uh, I did have to go back because they were concerned that there's something was still bleeding after the operation. So I had two operations there. And, you know, I had tubes coming out of every available orifice, it seemed to me, and I had to be fed through a tube to start off with. But when I got home, I had enough of hospital. I just wanted to be home. I was very weak, but over a period of time, and this has explained to me that this would happen, over a period of time I gained strength and was able then to move on to the next phase of the treatment, which, of course, was the chemotherapy. As you've just said, following the Whipple procedure, which it sounds like is a huge procedure, you were able to have chemotherapy or you received chemotherapy. We've previously spoken with Dr. Phoebe Phillips from the Lowy Institute, who does research in chemo. And one of the challenges that we know with chemotherapy and pancreatic cancer is because of the outer crust shell that is on pancreatic cancer, it doesn't necessarily work on a lot of people when the cancer is there. Can you please tell us a little bit about your experience and then that next phase of treatment? Yes, Marjorie, and uh, Phoebe, obviously, well, she knows all about it, but got it right. This is this cancer is one that can change its surrounding environment so that the chemotherapy can't get to it. Now, in my situation, and I should have mentioned with the surgery, they took out the surrounding lymph nodes. They're the glands that drain fluid from the pancreas as part of a, a circulation there. And they took 25 lymph nodes and, and didn't find cancer in any of them. So that was promising. Uh, and it meant that with the chemotherapy that I would then face, I, you know, I've had as good a, a chance and prospect that I could possibly have. So the chemo. And, and I had to wait for a couple of months afterwards to get the strength to take this on. So you think, well, if you've had the surgery and there's nothing in the lymph nodes, couldn't find anything, why do you need to have the chemotherapy? Well, the, the concern is 
that even though you can't see this on imaging, cells, cancer cells can have already just quietly tiptoed out of the pancreas and seeded in parts of the body, but not the end on anything that becomes visible to, it, to, to an image. So that's why you have the chemotherapy. And it was 12 courses of what's called fulfirinox, which is four different agents. You go, and for me, I went in on a Monday and I was infused with three agents over probably six-hour period and then was sent home with the fourth drug being infused in over 48 hours and then go back on the Wednesday and they take it out and they wish you well and see you again two weeks later. So I had 12 courses of that. I was lucky. I must admit I was thinking, am I going to have the vomit here? I don't like vomiting. Or will I have mouth ulcers? I didn't have either of those. I didn't care if I lost hair because I didn't have much anyway, So, and I didn't lose any. The main thing that happened was I really got very tired and lethargic, and it took me till the end of the second week before I sparked up a bit, and then they hit you again. But uh, I took that calmly because of one good thing, if you're tired, you just lie down. <laughs> That's a simple treatment. And I just accepted that just had to get through this. It seemed that it was going, it was endless. The months dragged in some ways, yet in retrospect, it, you know, it's come and it's gone. You have blood tests all the way through and had to be sure that the treatment wasn't worse than the disease because it can knock your blood cells. Again, I spoke about red and white cells before and these things called platelets, which help with clotting. So it hit them a bit, but I just stayed on the right side of the ledger to keep going. So, yes, I was tired, in spite of which I would a couple of times a day just go for a walk, which wasn't too far, but go as far as I could just to try and keep some exercise going because that was important to me and to my brain. Thank you so much for sharing that. Now, pancreatic cancer is currently the third leading cause of cancer death in Australia, and it's anticipated to be the second by 2030. As you've already mentioned, the five-year relative survival has only increased from 3.2% to now 107 over the past 30 years. Why does pancreatic cancer have such devastating statistics and what makes it different to other cancers? Well, Marjorie, you've hit on all the data which are really quite depressing. Uh, there's no doubt about that. I think there are several factors, and we've touched on uh, most of them already. First of all, because of where it is in the body, it is hard to pick early. And in some ways, it's like ovarian cancer, where both organs are tucked at the back, and you might get some symptoms, you may not, but and the symptoms are very vague. And it's a bit of noise, a bit of back pain, a bit of chest pain, or whatever. Symptoms that are so common. They're not specific. Again, you can have no symptoms at all. So it is hard to diagnose. We've mentioned the fact that it is a cunning disease, that the cancer can create its own microenvironment that makes it hard for chemotherapy to have an impact. We also found not that long ago malignant melanoma was a death sentence 
now, as just heard someone the other day talk about it, it's almost like a chronic illness because of immunotherapy. And so you could have antibodies to the cancer which can turn around and fight it. The genetic makeup of pancreatic cancer is so very variable. At the moment, immunotherapy doesn't hasn't made an impact yet, but people are working on that. So there, I think, the key factors. The other issue is when we talk about this relative to other cancers and we look at colorectal cancer, prostate cancer, breast cancer, cervical cancer, and so on. Three of those I've mentioned have good screening programs. So we've had the breast screening program, and that's made a big impact on finding cancers and getting to treat them early. The bowel cancer, one, and you mentioned my role as the uh, chief medical officer, many thousands of letters went out on my signature inviting people to send a sample of their faeces to, to a laboratory. I remember once one of my letters went to my wife at home and I came home from Canberra one Friday night because I used to commute to Adelaide and Canberra and she got my letter. She said, you didn't even sign it personally. You didn't say, dear Barbara. <laughs> and uh, I had to explain. She knew it anyway. She was just pulling my leg. But that is making a big difference. And now every two years we get invited to, to provide a sample of that. Now still, at the moment, bowel cancer is the second highest cancer killer. I presume that's the one that the pancreatic cancer will take over from. And then, of course, Cervical cancer, well, was never as common, but now we've even got the vaccine, the screening program and the vaccine. So that really has decimated its mortality rate, and thank goodness for that. So there's no screening program. There's It's hard to diagnose early, and there have been advances made in other cancers which is just brilliant, the therapeutics, the genetics and so on. So the outlook for other cancers is so much better. So that's why it's such a difficult disease and it's been hard to crack this. Now, the other part of this is there hasn't been a great awareness of the disease. I think that is increasing. By the way, there's no simple risk factor that's there. You can tell people if you do this or don't do this, you won't ever get it. You know, two most effective strategies to prevent it are to not smoke and to look to maintain a normal body weight, as in don't get overweight. But pretty general and wise health pieces of health advice, you know, there are other risk factors. I mean, if you're a male, you know, that's a risk factor. Well, not much you can do about that, is there, and, and so on. So, and family history is something that's a risk factor. Well, you can't do much about your family, but you can get followed up. And those who have any history of pancreatic cancer in their family, their family members should be following this up. It's just tough and hard to diagnose. Not It's hard to treat, hard to prevent, and that's why it is where it is and why it will be, uh, as you say, the second highest you know, cause of cancer deaths by 2030. It won't be the second most common cause of cancer, it, you know, that's, it's about number eight, nine or ten, really, that sort of area. But the deaths is what counts. But, Chris, there is hope. On the 23rd of March 2020, 
the Minister for Health, the Honourable Greg Hunt, invited Cancer Australia to work with the Department of Health to develop a national pancreatic cancer roadmap to support improved outcomes and the survival for people with pancreatic cancer. This roadmap is expected to be developed by December 2021. Why is this roadmap so essential? Well, Marjorie, first of all, it, it certainly was a very significant announcement and Cancer Australia is working already and put in a lot of work already on this. I'm fortunate enough to be on the steering group, so privy to the work that's being undertaken. And there's a consultation process going right now, so they're inviting, and I know there's well over 100 submissions already and maybe closer to 200, people putting forward ideas, issues and strategies and so on for this to, to move forward. And you know, a roadmap will give an ordered way of tackling all these issues that we've been talking about. Is there a way to find an earlier diagnosis? More work should go into that. Uh, chemotherapy, but also, and we haven't spoken a lot about it because I've been fortunate enough, but you know, you'd understand it, caring for the great majority of people who have the, what they call metastatic disease when they're diagnosed and what that impact on the, on the person, on the going through the disease course, on their carers, on their family. There are lots of needs there that need to be sorted. And the hope is and the plan is you get a good map and a whole range of areas where tackling can occur and then what really must follow is government investment in this roadmap so that properly targeted approach where you get the best bang for the buck can occur and the difference can be made now the roadmap will be finished by the end of next year of course by the end of next year, the budget for, I always have to get this right, 22-23 will already be formed. So you'd hope to get something in that budget, but you know, it could still be um, you know, another year or so down the track before significant money gets put into this. And my concern, of course, is if it's about 3,800 or, well, certainly, let's just say 3,500 people each year die from this disease. You know, in two years' time, that's 7,000 people have died. And you've just got to find ways quickly to help those people, but at least they will have a, a sense that something is being done, that everyone is taking this seriously. And it's that a lack of awareness it's been a problem, lack of investment in research it's been a problem, and we think that this will, the fact that there is a roadmap happening and that government will then, we trust, take the outcome of that very seriously, that offers hope. And, boy, we certainly need hope with this disease. We need more people in my situation where the diagnosis is made before it's spread because that gives right now the greatest hope. Chris, you've just brought up the lack of investment that has been going into research in this area. I think everyone is 
quite aware of the cuts that have been happening to the university sectors. New South Wales, it's devastating. Across all of Australia, it's pretty devastating. There's predicted to be up to 15,000 full-time academics that have lost their job by the middle of next year, and that includes those working in medical research. We've spoken with researchers from the Lowy Institute, including Dr Phillips, who has had to lay off staff from her own research team. What impact do you think these cuts to university sectors will have or could potentially have in terms of being able to expedite research and maybe not just necessarily in pancreatic cancer but across all medical research? Well, it's a very good question, Marjorie, and it certainly isn't a good outlook, is it? What I do look at is that there won't have been cuts to National Health and Medical Research Council or NHMRC funding, nor cuts to the Medical Research Future Fund or MRFF funding, as well as the all the other groups who raise money for research. Now, it's not easy. It's about you know, only the top researchers even put in an application to NHMRC, and it's about 13% success rate. There haven't been all that many applications to NHMRC over the years for funding for pancreatic cancer research because people look at the output and they see, well, they, they didn't fund much pancreatic cancer. That's the NHMRC fault. Well, it may be an element of not understanding which research is important in that area, but the researchers will go for where they think they'll get benefit. And it's sort of a, a downward spiral there. If there's a sense that there's not much that's changed over the years and I don't think I want to invest my research career in a disease where I might make an impact, but I won't apply for it. So lower applications, low success rate. The MRFF is something where the minister has the ability to say what will be funded. You know, the minister has advice and a good advisory panel but the minister can decide there will be this amount of money will go into research and which then turns the tables a bit. Now, if the infrastructure behind it has been decimated because of more general university and research bodies funding cuts, presumably relating to the impact of COVID and, and what we've seen through lack of students coming through and so on and university funding drop, that just adds a complicating factor. But I don't think it should dissuade people from putting applications or from looking at this on. And at least with the roadmap about which we've spoken, which should bring a government response. So uh, I think there are enough positives to outweigh that potential negative, but not to downplay those potential negatives. Chris, I've just got one last question for you before I let you go. As an advocate, as a healthcare professional, if there was one thing you wish people knew about pancreatic cancer that you think most do not know, what would that be? First of all, most people don't know about it because it's about the 11th most common cancer that's diagnosed in Australia. So it's about, about 3,600 or so diagnosed a year. So when you spread that across Australia, most people don't know about it and therefore don't know what a scourge it is and, of course, then get a dreadful surprise when they say, well, once you've got it, what it means. So 
it's that lack of awareness that when people hear about it, they just don't understand the impact that it has on the community because so many people die and it's devastating. So that's one thing. The other part from, for me for this is, is that issue of the diagnosis and how hard it is, the importance of an early diagnosis can have. Now, we've talked about the five-year survival rate for all people with pancreatic cancer is about 10%. I was just hearing the other day in a webinar from the Australian Pancreatic Cancer Foundation, Dr. Andrew Dean from Perth was talking about the five-year survival rate for people in my situation who were able to, because it hadn't spread, had the Whipple's procedure and then had the Fofirinox chemotherapy, that's a 45% five-year survival rate. Now, compared to prostate cancer, that's half as good, but it's four times as good as, as others, uh, you know, others having pancreatic cancer. So the, I think it's the importance of the diagnosis and getting it early. When we talk about educating GPs on this and making them aware, but gosh, it's hard to be a GP. Because if you see one case of pancreatic cancer every two years, and you see thousands upon thousands of patients in the, in the meantime, and it's vague. For GPs, the problem then can be by the time they help with the diagnosis, it can be too late. And as we know, the president of the College of GPs, Harry Nespelon, he died of pancreatic cancer. I've known Harry for quite some years from the mid-'80s at Flinders University. So it's that awareness issue It's is really a big thing, and that's awareness for research, it's Hi, awareness everyone. for diagnosis, and it's awareness and support for people who've got This month, November, is dedicated and to pancreatic cancer thing. awareness. I know, Marjorie, As I apologise for that. Today, but they're Dr. the Begali, things the country's that really just keep coming officer, into my head. Who's advised the government and on major health matters, you're including polite, the Ebola and Zika pandemics. Uh, I was well aware of this disease beforehand because... Who are lucky I enough to have an operation other, called the Whipple. Not On today's episode, Chris shares his lived experience, people, how he came uh, to be friends, diagnosed, symptoms he experienced, and, and the treatment process. And we'd seen the You're listening of the to Pitcher Voice. Before they were diagnosed. So I was fully aware of, of this. Lack of awareness wasn't a problem. As I said at the start of the interview, when you get the diagnosis and you're fully aware of what it means, uh, that really can hit you hard. Didn't answer your question. Sorry about that. <laughs> you did, actually, Chris. You did. I think the underlying thing is awareness, and yeah. that's the reason why we've dedicated this month to pancreatic cancer because mm. what has become incredibly acute to me is the lack of awareness of this. My family was probably incredibly typical of most families that we had no idea really about the disease until right. it impacted us. Yes. And it doesn't, sadly, it doesn't take too long because we all can Google and you Google yeah. it and you get a hell of a shock. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Coogee Voice. At some point, it would be lovely to have you at Coogee uh, and then I can ask you about your favourite beaches in the eastern suburbs. Yeah, no, Coogee. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't hard. <laughs> <laughs> Been there a few times, uh, 
with some conferences at which I'd spoken or attended. So, and the beach and, and the walks around, it's just magnificent. I envy you that part of the world. Thank you very much, Chris. And thanks for joining us on Coogee Voice. It's been a real honour and pleasure, Marjorie. And thank you for all you're doing. How lucky are we for Chris to share his insights? Now, if you'd like to learn more about the research that's going on locally with pancreatic cancer, head over to the UNSW medical site. But this Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, I encourage you all, learn the signs, and if you're experiencing any of them, get tested. You're listening to Coogee Voice.